Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This space for rent. If you own a small corporation, have a service, or even a podcast of your own that you wish to advertise, you can use the Contrarian Investor Podcast for this purpose. I will happily read an ad and shout out a link to your service at this stage of this podcast. So if you are interested, get in touch, email contrarianpod at gmail.com and let me know what you would propose. Obviously, there are limits to the type of things that can be advertised, but rates are low. And there's other ways that this can be marketed as well, using our Twitter account and, of course, the show notes. This distribution is pretty deep. We'll be happy to share any details. So get in touch, contrarianpod at gmail.com. Now on to today's episode starring Hugh Hendry. Here with a man who needs no introduction, certainly for contrarian investors or anybody who has followed contrarian investing the last 20 years, that is Hugh Hendry, founder of Eclectica Asset Management, uh, as well as some other things, a long and storied history as a contrarian investor. And I'm very pleased to have him on the program today. I'm very thrilled to be able to pick his brain here about markets, about the world, and about some other stuff. And to kick us off, I just want to start off and ask you point blank what your most contrarian view is right now on markets or the economy. And let's talk about that. The, the Fed don't matter. The Fed are not responsible for the asset price bubble. Um, the mercantilist nations, principally China, are screwing up our world. It has to be stopped. Okay. Do you mean long-term or short-term? Both. Or both? both. Okay. Um, so the Fed isn't irrelevant to the, uh, the, con- the conception, the unannounced conception of a private sector solution to banking, which effectively took out government or, to, or took out the legislature of, of the Federal Reserve starting in the mid-1950s. And again, starting because bread and woods just didn't work. Bread, uh, a monetary system needs to be elastic in its ability to create money and, and anchoring it to the US dollar wasn't elastic enough to expand the emerge the re-emergence of, of Europe as we rebuilt it after the Second World War. It wasn't elastic enough to rebuild uh, Japan for the, the, the same circumstances. And so the private sector came together outside the United States 
and, and created a monetary system which bypassed the Federal Reserve. And so all the Federal Reserve has had for the last 50 years has been rhetoric and they're kind of running out of rope. And I think they've made some blatant errors, principally through the COVID period with regard to the overuse of their rhetoric. And I think mm. that's coming back to haunt them. And as they lash out, um, they're actually uh, creating harm uh, to an economy, both a domestic American economy, but I would, I would extend that globally to an economy which has found itself in a mild depression ever since the global financial crisis of 2008. Hmm. Okay, so uh, take me back here. What do you mean by not elastic enough? Um, and wouldn't you, I mean, the, the, the recovery in Europe and Japan post-war was pretty successful by all counts, wasn't it? Yeah, because um, thankfully we, uh, thankfully the private sector kind of bypassed uh, the bread and wood system. So the uh, elasticity goes back into that Triffin dilemma, um, which just points uh, starkly at trying to use uh, one nation's monetary supply as an anchor for the rest of the world. Right. Elasticity is the ability to um, to print money okay. um, in periods of duress. In, in periods when the population are suffering, you know, right. gone, gone must be the days when uh, we crucify the nation on a cross of gold or God forbid, any other commodity. Um, right. So el- commodities are not elastic. Right. Uh, fiat money or you, a, a monetary system founded upon using the collateral of US treasury bonds, um, is where we are. Maybe right. it will be replaced. Um, but the common errors, I perceive it, and it's very much caught up in the the the, the new romantics um, of of crypto mm. to confuse the multifaceted uses and applications of money. I'm I'm talking about in this regard the use of m- the monetary system to heal. Um, profound cyclical swings, which which leave us very vulnerable. Um, I'm not talking about the role of money, which um, one alludes to with regard to store of value. You know, you, sure. have, you have huge choices, huge and varied, varied choices for store of value. Stock markets done a pretty damn good job the last 150 years. Mm-hmm. Um, art, wine, you know, you name it, crypto. Um, if if purchased purchased wisely and 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 without um, without the hubris perhaps of the last few years or the idealism of the last few years, right? Okay, so you're saying that we need something even more flexible than the the U.S. dollar has been. And what do you and uh, you touch on some of these asset classes that absolutely can store value and have stored value? Uh, they they aren't liquid. I mean, cryptos, I guess, are, but wine and and gold certainly aren't. But so what would you propose is um, be a solution here to, to, to fi- fix this? Well, I, um, obviously, wine is a, is a silly example, but yeah, sure. the, the, the cart of options is, is, is long, you know, from, um, from property, commercial property, residential property, landmark properties, um, treasury bonds, um, private equity, you know, credit, um, stock markets. I mean, heavens. The, the sum of all assets in the 
in the US economy reached a peak, a terrifying peak of about seven times GDP last year. So mm. uh, the assets are, 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 are many. To answer your question, we find ourselves in the fourth depression of the last 200 years. Um, the first depression was Les Miserables, you know, Victor Hugo's, I'm not really into musicals, uh, but Les Miserables was the period, let's call it 1830 to around 1855, which was then closely followed by the kind of the glorious or the, what I would call it, the Wizard of Oz uh, depression of 1870 to the late 1890s. And then the one we know most about, the, the depression of the 1930s, and then today. Um, now, the three previous occurrences of depression um, were um, ended with either a revolution or a, a, an important discovery um, of, of new money. Um, again, the ability to make money elastic, to make it expandable so that we didn't crucify the population. Right. The 1830s um, was the discovery of the, the Californian goldfields, uh, so which created a, a significant um, increase in, in what was a scarce resource. Gold was hard to find. Um, and, and bank lending was very much a function of the banks, the private sector banks, actually having um, physical gold bars in their vaults. Um, you reach a point when you have extended the limit of your credit and you cannot do more. Um, the same thing happened again in the 1870s, which was the rebuild after the Civil War. Um, banks extended credit until they couldn't extend credit more because the, the gold wasn't elastic. Um, it became more elastic with the discovery of, not the discovery, but um, the technological breakthrough to to ble uh, bleach, what I want to say, to leach um, gold uh, out of the grounds, the grounds of South Africa. So again, you had a, a supply increase. The depression of the 30s, heavens, what, what was the solution there? Um, I would possibly say, I mean, clearly we had the advent of war. Was war the solution? I, I hope not. I suspect not. I can't think of a, a proper intellectual justification for that. Um, probably it was the emergence of a private sector banking-based system, which took government out of lending. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're here today, and um, we know there'll be an innovation. We know there'll be uh, a newfound su supply. Do I want to say supply? I want to I push back on that. Perhaps I'll do that later. Um, but innovation, perhaps. Um, and I'm watching blockchain. You know, I'm, 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 I'm expectant. Um, that that could provide something. So if euro, if the euro dollar system took bank uh, took governments out of the money making system, maybe blockchain will allow us to take banks out of the money making system, and maybe that will allow us to escape this kind of this fourth uh, period of depression. Right. And so the fourth period of depression would have started in two thousand eight. I'm assuming. Yeah. And all right, that's all very interesting, but. The issue you have is that it's all everything is still denominated in U.S. dollars and and other fiat currencies, which are driven by central banks, of course. And is that really a system that you think can be replaced? Are they driven by central banks? They're driven by private sector banks. You know, so the Federal Reserve okay. has has 
again, to use the the camouflage of their language has, has printed seven, what, seven trillion dollars? Or yeah. is it nine trillion dollars? I think it was Total. seven. And then they did another two trillion after the period when it became established that the recovery from COVID would be V rather than some something protracted. I think they added another two trillion, but like you say, a lot. But that's not money. You know, it's I don't know what it is, laundromat tokens or or what have mm-hmm. you. It only becomes money. It's essentially what they did was they they poured a lot of gasoline around um, an igloo. Uh, what I want to say is they furnished the private sector banking community with the ability to to set the house on fire in terms of inflation. Um, they gave it the means to really let rip. Um, but it's private sector banks extending credit to other um, other agents within the economy, which is the money printing business. And that hasn't happened. Banks have been profoundly uh, unwilling um, to extend credit. And mm-hmm. that's why, yes, we've had an economic recovery since 2008. Yes, the nominal and real levels of GDP exceed the peaks of 2007. But the 30 years up until 2007, the US economy was compounding in real terms at a rate of about 2.7. And we've never attained that level again. We've we've lost at least one percentage point of that every single year. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a huge loss. That's a huge loss in people's dreams and people's livelihoods, um, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And it hasn't kept kept pace with the growth we have had hasn't kept pace with inflation, at least these last couple of years. I don't think we have inflation. I mean, you really contentious points. Uh, I, I don't, uh, you know, uh, m- maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm stupid, but inflation is a monetary phenomenon. Okay. What does that mean? Okay. So prices are presently, uh, price increases are running at, between nine and ten percent. Okay, um, what? Where are these price increases? These price increases are everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And they are in. Um, and, and and for simplicity, it's best to uh, separate the world between discretionary and non-discretionary. So you know, food and filling up your car to travel to work, etc., would be um, would be non-discretionary. You have no choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, going to Tiffany's and buying a ring or subscribing to you know. Uh, another family pass for Netflix would be discretionary. Um, now, Milton Friedman launched this notion of it being a monetary phenomenon because unless money is circulating, again, this elasticity concept, unless the elasticity of money expands to accommodate the higher price level of everything, if it does that, then the average consumer can maintain the consumption because there is enough financial means to continue the same spending patterns. But what if the elasticity is not there? What if money is not coursing through the economy? What if banks are not printing money uh, with abandonment? Then we reach a situation where probably uh, money is growing something less than 6% nominal. And so what you will find, what you are finding, what the second profit warning in a row from Walmart reveals is that people are forced, compelled to cut back on discretionary items. And the media this week has been full of preposterous headlines. Uh, 
the retail sector sends out confusing signals. Apparently, sales of Harley-Davidson are way up. Apparently, again, to I quoted Tiffany, Tiffany sales are way up. Okay, well, there's no mystery there. Like, there's like a, a cohort of profoundly rich people uh, who are trading off the back of asset price inflation. Yeah, and those people are my my clients in St. Barts. You know, I mm-hmm. I own one lot. Profoundly luxurious Villa Blanc Bleu, Maison Blanc Bleu. Please come and visit. Um, I'd love to. And, and I'm about to open uh, the second Blanc Bleu La Sauvage. Um, I mean, over Christmas, you're talking about over $200,000 a week to rent. Okay, so you we're talking about that cohort of the 1% of the 1%. Um, they come in, if you come now, here we are in August, you have humidity levels of 80%. The temperature is in the high 80s, if not 90s. And the complaint is, that the swimming pool is not warm enough. We, we are we are burning electricity. Actually, it's a solar panel, but um, we, we have that thing heated to the max as though it was winter. Yeah. And, and then the complaint is indoors that the AC is not cool yeah. enough, right? So it, there's no mixed signal. Rich people are damn, damn rich and getting richer uh, and willing to spend. And, and the, the people who have no choice and find themselves at Walmart are cutting back. So yeah. it brings back that we saw something similar to this after the, the Second World War. And remember, we, we've just come through another warlike situation with COVID. And when it all rebalances, when, when, when industrial capacity is out of sorts, it was out of sorts in the Second World War because it was all reconfigured to make bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it had all been reconfigured figured, uh, from 20. 20 to 2022 to to be uh, to be closed down mm-hmm. and and the process of re-engaging that is higher prices okay but higher prices which are not met by an ebullient banking sector will force a retrenchment by the majority of people they will be forced to make hard decisions on their spending and i think we're seeing that okay so to understand correctly like the, there there has been money creation and credit creation but you're saying it's all going to the very top and I'm assuming you don't think this is ever going to trickle down to the regular folks. For sure. And it hasn't. Not. For sure it's not. So the, the money creation. So let's like do the, the gist of my argument. The, the, the system is failing us. Um, we, and I, I mentioned the horrors of, what is it? Is it William Jennings Bryan or Jennings Bryan Williams? I always get William Jennings. It's the first one, yeah. Who was the, the, the populist presidential candidate. Uh, he ran twice in the 1890s. And again, he was arguing for, effectively he was arguing for Bitcoin, or he was arguing for, again, an expansion in the money supply. Um, he was arguing that we should go, we should ditch just gold, and we should introduce the plentiful and American source uh, silver, so that, you know, we could resuscitate. Um, and without that, we were crucifying people. Um, and something very similar happened in the 1920s and into the 1930s. Um, it's happening today vis-a-vis the dollar yuan or the dollar renminbi or the dollar Chinese uh, peg. Um, the monetary creation, which is transforming the economy of the United States, the, the industrious and the entrepreneurial economy of the United States is being corrupted by a, a, the great sin of another nation not trusting its own citizens 
and forcing them via various, um, not cultural, but various uh, government diktat and regulations and just putting them into kind of uh, windows where they are limited with choice. Um, it's, it's, it is refusing to pursue in Dodge. So China is refusing to pursue domestic-led economic growth, which comes from the individual, which comes from the consumer. It doesn't trust people. It's, the, it's a communist party. It wasn't elected by people, and it doesn't trust people. And it fears that if you let the people uh, spend money, then for sure, They'll get things wrong and we'll have private sector booms and private sector busts. And they, and they worry that the bus would take them out. So mm -hmm. they worry about a repeat of what we saw at the end of the 1990s with uh, Thailand and the Tiger Asian thing, which just went boom. Okay, So their um, solution to that is to suppress, and, and, and we know this, uh, consumption is 40% of GDP in China. It's remarkably low, remarkably low, uh, and by design. And so instead, they've parked um, almost the same quantity as the Fed pretends via its quantitative easing. They've actually injected $7 trillion um, into the US economy and said, you spend, it's almost vendor financing. It's almost like this crackpot mm -hmm. idea from the last 18 months of, hey, buy now, pay, pay when, pay never, you know. Um, now, that... That would work as a system. That would work if the American economy, if, if it was the 19th century. You know, we wouldn't have had those depressions if we had, if we had the largesse of the Chinese. Mm. But we're, the US is not building uh, dams. It's not building multiple uh, rail tracks to the same destination. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, we don't have a, a revolution in, in chemistry or telecommunications. Um, it's a different form of economy and where there are opportunities to invest, the private sector has already filled it. So this $7 trillion that comes in from, I really want to say, mean-spirited uh, mercantilist nations, it, it's the glut of savings that Bernanke went on about. Okay? And it's poisonous because it takes the price of money very, very low. And when you take the price of money to, to zero, then you take the price of assets, of safe assets, effectively to infinity. So that's where we were when you know, the 10-year German Bund was like minus 80 basis points, when Apple is a $3 trillion company. And Isn't that every, inflation though? Um, that's asset price inflation. Okay. But you know, the, the, folk, the folk who work in the Amazon uh, warehouse, do they see the inflation? And, and where, where it's a real scourge is... It unleashes speculation, and speculation is unstable, and so we periodically get big drawdowns. Mm. Um, March 2009 was very notable. It, it creates a volatility machine. March 2009, uh, prices were on the verge of resetting to zero. Equity prices would reset to yeah. zero. C Citigroup in March 2009 was trading at nine bucks. Right, which was right. the prevailing level from the mid 1970s, yeah. and actually nine bucks was the wrong price because it was bankrupt. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now the problem there is, the the Fed didn't bail. The U.S. citizen bailed out asset prices, and 
I can't complain about that. I think that was, you know, to, to reset to zero would have been a catastrophe. Uh, however, you're asking the disenfranchised members of the United States economy, those who don't have the fortune of owning assets, either because of their age, their skill set, or other forms of misfortune, and they are effectively subsidizing the asset owners. And what have they got to show for it? It's not obvious what they have to show for it. Yeah, yeah. But yet, for now, like they're still willing to do it and still willing to live their lives. I mean, you mentioned revolutions and, and the periods that you that we talked about. Uh, I mean, I guess you could maybe claim 1848 was a series of revolutions failed in Europe, yeah. mostly. But, um, and I guess 1870 in France, but the... Other than that, there hasn't really been like all those periods didn't really end in revolution. I hate to turn this into a talk about that, this type of stuff. Yeah. But um, it, but it, the point is that citizens for now seem to be content with their lot in the capitalist system. Just buying stuff they can't afford and that they don't need and working their jobs and whatever. Or is that the wrong take? It's not my take. Um, and maybe it's because I had the fortune or otherwise. But I moved to, to, to Paris in August of 2018. Um, so there are two tales there. It was profoundly difficult to find an apartment because that was the summer of or the summer following Brexit. And there was a oh. lot of there was a lot of French leaving London and coming back. Sure. And, and the French are blinking gracious. It's like you know, they're, they're very uh, tight rules on kicking people out of rented accommodation. So they kind of prefer that you're French. They kind of prefer that you work for Danone, et cetera. And I turned up with my Hugh Hendry hat and my spectacles and my rock star kind of, you know, gig. And I'm like, you know, you need a hundred grand for the deposit, boom. And they're like, what are you going to sell this cocaine next? You know, so that was, that was difficult. Uh, and then secondly, um, having secured like you know a dope apartment, I mean, go to my Hugh Hendry official YouTube channel and you'll see I made a stupid. I was so big I could skateboard skateboard through the the damn apartment. All right, um, and I was in just you, if you you could see the arc de triomphe from the from the windows, but at the weekend. You could smell, I was going to say, say you could smell napalm. You could smell napalm. You could smell tear gas because it coincided with Macron kind of raising the levy on, on diesel um, owing to the commitment to either Kyoto or probably Paris. Yeah. And, and the, the population that works in Amazon warehouses and actually have to put on a thousand euros a month. Imagine that. And and fill it, and actually probably have to spend over an hour driving a day, and then the price goes up because the because all of us, but especially the rich people, want to save the planet. And they're like, no, it was open revolt. I've yeah, never yeah, yeah. never seen open revolt. I've never so I I now know the the smell of tear gas. So um, maybe that's maybe that's just France, okay. Yeah. Um, but I I suspect actually. Um, modern life sucks for many and and mm. i think i think that's behind the opiate epidemic etc but yeah further removed from contradian investing yeah potentially i mean i will say i mean i've lived in france too actually and and they have i mean they're 
they they constantly have strikes, right? Like I have, like I have, like they're constantly doing. I mean, I'm, although having said that, probably what you experienced was a little more significant. I'm not doubting that. Okay, fair enough. All right, so let's let's move things back to investing here. What does an investor do? What does the investor do? Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, what, what what's intriguing is uh, since the advent of the fantasy of printing money via quantitative easing. Okay, so you're making dollars more and more plentiful. You create nine trillion dollars of them. Um, you would think the marginal price of a dollar would fall, and in fact, it's actually increased. So again, kind of like you know. Uh, it, it's it's rhetoric. It's it's, it's silly. Um, and again, the the other strange thing is uh, in this world where, again, they tell us their their print. You know, Jay Power went on daytime television in the summer of 2020, and he said, "We're printing money." Mm-hmm. He openly said that. Now, yeah. the law that created the Fed um, does not allow that, and any intelligent person. I say any intelligent person. That's unfair. I think. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. I've said before, there's maybe five people in the world who understand money. I mean, that's a shock to the outside world. You think all these masters of the universe, hedge fund types, uh, bankers, private bankers, you know, credit. Almost none of them understand money. I understand a little bit. I'm kind of, you know, a little bit, but it's such a such a big thing. Um, so what are people missing? Well, they're blindsided by, you know, a, a government campaign for the last 50 years that, you know, the Fed is omnipotent, that the Fed's got this, that the Fed's, you know, con- controls money. The, you know, the Paul Volcker myth. I mean, yeah. there was an interview in the Financial Times uh, a week ago from the, uh, what's she called? Um the uh, former secretary of the SEC, I can't remember her name firsthand. Um, yeah, yeah, and she just she she did the the Volcker myth that that it was. Remember, we used to measure M two M two plus CDs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We would have targets and all that stuff. <laughs> they, they did eventually say, "We're sorry, that was a waste of time. We we cannot measure this. Why can't you measure it? Why is it? Why why were your uh, endeavors fruitless?" Because the euro dollar private like kind of metric system was doing it offshore, and you weren't looking at that. Uh, Sheila Blair is the the name. Um, yeah. I mean, she writes a big piece and a big opinion piece. Um, you know, a, one of the, the two principal financial newspapers in the world prints it without anyone going. But that's wrong. So lots of myths have grown up um, concerning money. Mm. Uh, the where should we go with this? The uh, depressions reveal uh, a desire not to take risk. Um, right. You know, a desire to, to favor low, even negative, but certain returns, because your appetite for for commercial return, the precedent um, when you when you turn in on yourself and you look back. The, the precedent is one of grave error um, of, of Citigroup being bankrupt, mm-hmm. et cetera. And you don't, you don't want to, and, and the incentivization scheme has changed. And why would you only lose your job? It's not like you get a massive bonus these days. So um, we saw this after the, the, the bankruptcy of the banking sector in the 1930s. Um, mm-hmm. 40 years later, going into the 1970s, 
banks were utilities, high yielding, very, very conservative, almost impossible to get loans from. And, and in fact, Jimmy Rogers went to, to George with the quantum fund. And George started the quantum fund in 69. And he said, Times are changing. I'm listening to Bob Dylan. Times are changing. And these banks are sending kids and they're doing these MBAs and they're coming back and they're like, I got ideas. I can change the world. Um, and Jimmy was saying, we should, we should invest in banks because uh, it's a contentious narrative. And I, and I say to you that these stuffy utilities, I've seen a future where they become these growth vehicles. And George is like, oh, my back, my back hurts, you know, and he's like, yeah, go for it. And, and they were right. Mm. So you take long periods where uh, culturally society demands that, you know, it has a revulsion for the previous activity um, and you, you, you bend into that. That's where we are. We're, we're like 15 years into what could be, you know, a 30 year, 40 year period. Mm. Okay. Well, that still begs, begs the question, what does an investor do and, also, what comes next? We talked a little bit about Bitcoin, the whole decentralized finance, and how that could, I guess, put the replace the banks. Um, but I mean, the whole system though is is kind of rigged in the banks' favor, right? I mean, they you had the like the repealed Glass Steagall Siegel in the in the nineties, and they had all these regulations and, and repeals of regulations in the nineties that kind of let them become these huge things that they did. And then eventually they, a couple of them went belly up in 08, but they, and for a little while, there's talk about making them, you know, wardens of the state and that never much came to that, but can't you just keep doing this? And so to your question, um, the big issue just now is again, the rhetoric of the federal reserve. Um, So in my career, um, post-2008, um, I was periodically uh, seeking to receive interest rates, which was um, a macro strategy that said uh, rates are now elevated. They're elevated by a kind of Pavlovian notion that in the past um, you would have recoveries and, and retain the trend rate of growth. And and central banks would have to pivot and they would have to raise interest rates. And so you'd have, again, not structural, but period, um, cyclical five, six, uh, 10 years of, of higher rates and, until, until it's opposite. And I was early in conceiving the notion that it was actually a depression. I think I was mindful of, of the events in Tokyo. And you'd had that Pavlovian response where as soon as you got uh, emergence of an economic recovery, people were coming in and they were paying. They were saying, hey, look, I'm paying. Rates are going to go higher and higher and higher here. I, I want more of that. Um, and that proved consistently the wrong thing. Um, and typically, um, the, the sweet spot for that macro strategy was the bank, the central bank would tease you for, for months. We're thinking about raising rates. Uh, we just met yesterday. Maybe oh, all this kind of nonsense, um, and then they would do it, and that was the, the moment where it's the sum of all your, my worst fears, if you will. But that was the point where you where you struck. You know, the uh, ECB, to its immortal shame, raised interest rates. I think in June or July of two thousand and eight. Yeah, 
Uh, that was the peak in rates. Yeah, that was the peak in the whole the whole curve w- within Europe. And um, so they prevaricate, they procrastinate, procrastinate, and then boom, they, they find the, the, the guts and the courage to do it at the wrong time. And that's when you you make your money. And they come in and they they recant and they say, oh, we got it wrong, and they quickly go back. Um, that seems a bit of a challenge, that strategy today, because the Federal Reserve seems to be doing a Volcker pivot. You know, again, it's reading Sheila Blair in the Financial Times. Um, and it's dating. So, so Volcker, when was Volcker appointed? He was appointed in the late 1970s. Okay. And I, I said to you, we had conservative banks. Um, I said to you, we had the bankrupt, bankruptcy of the banking sector 40 years prior. Um, and with bankruptcy, you had debts of three, three and a half percent to GDP in America. And by 40 years later, society had deleveraged and we were like one times debt to GDP. So the Fed raising rates and it you know, obviously raised rates considerably. When debt's like one times GDP, no big deal. Okay. But you try that exercise when debt is four and a half times GDP. You try that exercise when you kind of just spent 15 years inflating asset prices because money was priced at zero and asset prices are already correcting from seven to four and a half times GDP. You're going to bring on the mother of all economic storms in, in, in my world. By raising rates. By ra- and, and which they have. Yeah. Um, and the inf- so the elevation in price increases is likely to continue. You know, whilst consumer, like the Walmart consumer, is already retrenching, price of oil ain't coming down. You know, price of commodities, which are in profound scarcity, and why the scarcity? Because we had this plague of um, the environmental social governments, the ECG, um, where we didn't have a balanced debate. And again, people kind of got angry and they said, hey, stop. We got to save Mother Nature. You know, stop. And that wasn't an intelligent, detailed debate. It was simply politicians pursuing sound bites within a kind of four-year term of office and then leaving it to someone else. And it's left us with a profound scarcity of, of, of production, of supply of this. So that's likely going to remain elevated. And, and so the fear that I would have receiving rates today is I just don't recognize this Federal Reserve. I don't re- recognize humility. I recognize more and more kind of rhetoric, which I associate with a a lowly leveraged economy. And so the danger is they could just keep pushing us over the edge. Hmm. Now, in the short term, again, so um, Pavlovian cycles within Pavlovian cycles, um, people have, you know, the, the bond market all year has said, Fed, you're wrong. You know, the, the bond market should, should and does set interest rates. Uh, the Fed just, you know, threw a sand in, in the, you know, you know the, the markets were raising raised rates ever since the Fed's intervention in March 2020. And then the Fed comes in and goes, oh, we better join in. And like, it's, you know, it's like an uncle dancing at, at a wedding. You're like, no, just, you know, like have another glass of wine, stay out of it, you know. 
you know, the equity market's caught a bid over the summer. And it's caught a bid because the, the treasuries have stopped falling. So, you know, the yeah. first six months of the year were profoundly painful and unusual mm-hmm. because all asset price, there was no diversification. Every, everything just came down. There's been the emergence of diversification. Um, but I'm, I think, so if you will, treasuries are a comfort blanket mm-hmm. for stocks. Um, but I fear that treasuries have grown up issues, which is how we resolve the ESG uh, phenom- social phenomenon, which is leaving us with a profound shortage of commodities, which then influence non-discretionary spend, such as filling your car up um, and AC and heating your house. Um, and so it'd be fascinating to see how that 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 um, uh, uh, plays out. Mm. But you seem to be saying you think that the Fed is going to keep pushing on higher interest rates here. The Fed will continue to push on interest interest rates until such time as you get another. You know, just now we're in a kind of a blah bear market. You know, kind of right. we were t- we're up either side of twenty percent down. Um, if you're down forty five percent. Yeah, the, the the Fed will get called. Okay, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, we, and we know what they've done previously. Um, right. But you know, so that and, and so they they'll they'll do some black. Yeah, they'll do some magic. Yeah, they'll they'll pull the rabbit out of the hat. Um, equity prices will will respond accordingly. Um, do you go back to all time highs if oil is 125, 135, 145? Um, something to ponder. I don't know the answer. Mm. I haven't seen the future, but uh, that would be one of the the fears. Mm. Um, but but now, what if you have inflation still stubbornly high, and it's kind of at, I mean, at least the the CPI, if you believe it, whatever. And what if that kind of binds the Fed and keeps them from dropping, from cutting yeah. interest rates? Yeah, no, indeed. Like I'm saying, the 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 CPI owing to let's do lots of acronyms: CPI, ESG, yeah. you know, but. Commodity prices really um, have to remain elevated if we wish to encourage the private sector entrepreneurs um, to extract more. I mean, it's a, it's a really tough business. Yeah, um, it's a really risky business, and it, re- and it requires a reward. And then at the same time, um, when you know, we've we've seen the financial reward in the earnings season of the the oil and gas sector, mm. and I don't know how vociferous it is in the United States, but in Europe, the, the front page headlines are price gouging. You know, so so BP um, reported one of its best quarterly earnings. Mm. Um, um, it's the margin in, in refining is just off the charts, isn't it? Um, but B, and so it captures the, you know, uh, the, the, the liberal social consciousness that this is bad. And it's like, well, let's, let's, Let's just look at the share price. The share price of BP is almost little changed from mm. where it was in 1981, 41 years ago. So it's not evident that these companies have been price gouging. It's more evident that this is the return that results when you kind of ban uh, exploration, therefore you create a, a profound shortage. You know, it's, you know like we want we to cure cancer. You know, so imagine you insisted on closing down all the medical laboratories. That's kind of where we are just now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's a, 
more and more it, it feels like Atlas Shrugs. I mean, I'm just getting ready for some big entrepreneurs just to say, hey, look, you know, take the keys. I tried, you know, I, you said you wanted more uh, U.S. energy supply. We have bountiful energy supply in the North American continent. I can deliver it. Um, but what did you do in 2018? You jacked up interest rates. You know, you killed my, you know, my credit, my, my, my credit bonds, my high yield went from trading at a dollar to trading on like 30 cents. And I've got people up my ass. You know, like I, I tried, guys. And then you sent me, you said I had to have a, a new board of directors and they would measure me on this social government. I, yeah, I, I've, I've tried. I've had it. Like, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm off to Colorado. I've got a secret canyon. You know, good luck on it. Mm. So, okay. So it sounds like you still like commodities in general and even some of the oil producers. Is that fair? Um, that's that's fair. So um, through transparency, um, I do not invest. I mean, so where I am, I I am fully loaded on my version of crypto in that okay. I'm invested in St. Bart's property. So this is a tiny, you know, it takes you like 15 minutes in a car to like go around the islands. Tiny. Yeah. Um and you have the the kind of halving principle. Well, you've got the obviously the absolute constraint of a tiny island in terms of the number of houses. And then you kind of got this um, building regulation um, containment process whereby the houses that I built in 2015, you would never be allowed to, to build again. Oh, so wow. it's accentuating. Uh, a reduction, if you will, in supply, and therefore making the existing stock more valuable. And you know, my bet is that um, there will always be revolutions in thinking and technology and execution. Therefore, there will always be a new rich person. So is why you buy LVMH, because when you've had a good time, um, God love them. They like to peacock and they like to show to their peer group, hey, look at me. And so, you know, St. Bars, you need a boat, you need a villa. You need to go to the best restaurant, and that's 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 where I am. But to your question, um, seriously, I just like to read. Just now, uh, I'm too obsessed by the end of the, end of the war, and I've got to lighten up. But um, <laughs> um, one thing to conceive of, because I'm into flow state investing, or I was. So th this point with regard to the energy complex. Uh, beware, because if we are in a bear market, uh, you will come in under profound pressure to sell. Even if we're actually, right. even if if we're in a profound bull market, I would say to you, it's the same thing. Um, I call it the bucking broncos. Like markets use volatility as a mechanism to make sure that very few people actually attain great success. And so you have to be flown. You've got to be a little bit paranoid. And you've got to kind of cons. You can't, it's not enough to conceive of the journey as point A to point B. You've got to conceive of it as we took a wrong turn. We got to go back. You know, um, the, the kids, we need to take a pit stop. You know, the people got to be fed. You know, um, and so one thing, one thing that we saw this year, if we take Rio Tinto, uh, one of the big platform commodity producers, and we're in the midst of shortage. And elevated prices. And yet their share price has been a catastrophe. It was yielding 16%. And of course, they've just 
um, at least half the dividend. It's like, wow, who would have, you know, when I was in my prime and managing my hedge fund um, to outsmart the smartest people, my, my peer group, how, how, how do you outsmart the smartest people? Who, who, would, who would take on that mandate? Who would say I'm smarter than you lot? Not me. I always consider why is it that being smart, you're not guaranteed to make money, you know, so different way. And so a manifestation of that is the investiture, you know, not everyone can see the, the playbook with shortages and how you, you end up getting a, an elevation. Not everyone can see what's become almost the irrelevance of you know, the WTI uh, oil contracts. Uh, most of the action is being taken place OTC. Mm. There's much vol in, 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 in the contracts. And the price OTC is, well, the, the futures price is not representative of the OTC price. Mm. I want to say there's a huge gap between uh, physical and, and financial demand. Uh, okay. These are the OTC and, and, and the like. Uh, and so the, the future would seem to be one where I could conceive of the S&P oil and gas sector retaining the profound highs of being um, 30% of the makeup of the index. That's where we were at the end of the 1930s. That's where tech was um, uh, at the peak of NASDAQ and probably just, just lately. Um, what is it now, the oil and gas, you know? Oh, I think I, th I think it's just doubled to about eight or something. I okay, so it's still got a ways to grow. Well, got a ways, um, but uh, but again, just never think of just point A to point B. So I I, yeah. I can think of that the the investiture and the knowledge, which are wonderful, but they actually they can make you less nimble. Right. I, I one of my things was I could sell, I could sell, I could buy and believe in anything. And then reject it tomorrow. I'm like, Jesus, never heard of him. Well, the guy with the beard does the miracles, the the wedding, the wine, the bread, never heard of him. Sorry. You know, that you need that kind of um, you know, um ambidexterity with with your mind. And that that's so that's my only concern. You know, I look at uranium. Right. I love uranium, the, the nuclear story. And again, it's life is full of paradox. Um the Greens wanted to, and indeed have closed nuclear made it an irrelevance in Germany. And what are they doing now? They're, they're burning coal. And, and like really sulfurious bad stuff. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Another point to, to make is, you know, uh, we don't, we largely don't burn oil in, in heating homes today from the grid. Um, it's te maybe 10% oil, 90% natural gas. Um, if you were to look at the price being paid to heat homes or have AC in the summer, and you were to put that into a barrels per oil, like crude oil comparison, Europe's paying 600 bucks. Wow. 100 bucks, you know. Uh, and it's one of the things we forget, like, I do not understand why anyone would build a chemical plant outside the United States. You know, gas is unbelievably cheap. In the in the the shelf of the United States, unbelievably expensive everywhere else. Hmm. So anything kind of uh, with the the gas feedstock and with uh, American orientation, again, you should own so fertilizer come into that that equation. Okay, and India puts an auction out every year for for the fertilizer thing, 
I the US you just don't that. I mean, that it's inconceivable that anyone would have a lower feedstock. So mm-hmm. there are those things. But you know, uranium, I look at chemical, um, and then I just conceive of contentious narrative. I'm like, well, you know, um, it it did get a little bit hot, you know, the the the, the Canadians they created that fund. They were buying physical and it was all, you know, it was on bullet boards and it was kind of hot and stuff. And um, I just know that those bucking Broncos, despite the fact that uranium might trade at 90 or 100 bucks, they might take chemical from, I think, 21 bucks to 14 bucks before mm-hmm. it goes to 100 bucks. Yeah, that's yeah. that's my word. Okay. Okay, cool. So long term uh, uranium. You mentioned some luxury goods uh, providers, LVMH. Any others? Well, I... I I put a tweet out the other day. Um, LVMH is about 10% off its all-time high. Hmm. So LVMH is the largest cap stock in Europe. Um, and so what, one mental trick that I I used was, um, you know, where is the where is the comparative advantage in United, in European equities? I mean, you know, where, are, where are the stocks that I can't find anywhere else? Um, and and that was luxury. Um but I can't shake off a doubt that um, especially China and everything, the, the, clamp, the cultural clampdowns, you know, um, in the UK in the 1970s, they had this disastrous policy where they decided that we could not have elite education, that everyone had to be treated the same. And so effectively, we, we brought everyone to the mean which is catastrophic. You know, we we need, you know, we need fireworks. We, we we need the adventurers. We need the the entrepreneurs who are going to shake up and and redesign the future. And and if you bring everyone into the what is colloquially called a comprehensive system, um, you're producing grey when you could have rainbows. Uh, and China seems to be doing that. You know, mm-hmm. it's been locking up the being locking up the wizards who unlock themselves, who made great fortunes. Is coming into the education system saying you can't pay for extra extra courses. You have to be grey. You can't be the rainbow. Um, so you're not far away from saying, well, you actually we we feel uncomfortable with you peacocking and parading your wealth. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, especially when you reset to kind of zero GDP growth. Do you really want people peacocking within you know that kind of party uh, system? Don't know. Um, if that gets taken away, then that's an issue. Yeah, yeah. Because LVMH and the other European luxury uh, and American, they they sell a lot of stuff in China, don't they? Yeah, I mean, Ch- Ch- China. The China is the reason that the, the, their enormous market cap. China is right. the reason. Plus, they've executed well. Um, sure. So sure. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't touch LVMH. Okay. Cool. Hugh Hendry, uh, I want to take a short break in this fascinating conversation and come back and ask you some more about yourself, what you're doing these days down there in St. Bart's, some other things, and uh, some, yeah, some other stuff. So let's do that. But before we do, let's take a short break to let our sponsors be heard. If you are a premium subscriber, do not touch the dial. You're not getting the break. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. To become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. 
consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the daily contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. All right, welcome back, everybody. Here with Hugh Hendry, uh, one of the OG contrarians. Hugh, I have a list on Twitter and that I've added you to OG contrarians. Congratulations. But uh, this is the part of the show where we ask the, our guests about themselves a little more, about their personal and professional background, how they came to this station in life. I mentioned you're in St. Bart's. Obviously, you had a long career managing money. Um, so you take us back a bit, how you got your start. Uh, yeah, I'd be curious how, that, how you got into investing in the first place. And mm. then, yeah. Yeah. Um, so all my favorite books are all like kind of rock people. And it's all about, you know, they're, they're, the, the light bulb moment was hearing Bowie or, you know, being BCBG or whatever in New York, um, etc. Uh, you know, being part of eight people in Manchester, seeing, you know, the Sex Pistols. Mm. And for, me, for me, it's less romantic, but it's just, in my mind, just as powerful because... Um, yeah, I was a kid from a project, a, a mean and nasty, and poor project in Glasgow, um, rain time. Um, and I came from a society where you didn't go to university. Um, and, and so if you will, I was the hero kid, you know, uh, the entitled kid, the kid that could do no wrong, but kind of the kid who was alone bringing themselves up. And that kind of stamps you in terms of typically that profile makes you successful later on. Um, whether you find happiness with, you know, internal happiness, you know, like Steve Jobs isn't with us because of the, you know, the, the crimes and misdemeanors that come with that imprinting from, from, from early on. Um, I 
I now have to tell you a great confession. So my father was a truck driver. That's not a confession. Um, when you start from that station and and I want to say that uh, I didn't want to go to university because I was burnt out. I had worked. <laughs> this is preposterous. I worked so damn hard in the four years prior to that. I, I, I felt like I needed a break, but, you know, thankfully there were adults in the room like, no, 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 like you're going to do this. And um, I, I want to say I'm, I'm a kind of creative type. I'm, I'm not a detail type. Um, and so I filled my university application form in incorrectly and because my grades were good I got automatically filled and and unfortunately it was the wrong way around back I, I joined university in 1986 and remarkably they had a fantastic course called technology and business studies so they gave you economics management and they learned you how to write code yeah this is like you know 10 years before Nasdaq started yeah. to imagine uh, that was my second choice. It was my first choice, but I express as my second choice. I didn't get it. And instead, I found myself studying accountancy. <laughs> you imagine me as an accountant? <laughs> accountancy and economics, a joint, a joint degree. Um, in the fourth and final honours year, um, I was introduced to something called market-based accounting research. And, and so we had data stream. I mean, no one, everyone's too young now, but data stream was this kind of very rudimentary, early a price database system. And I was charged with, you know, um, um, the null hypothesis. Um, do markets respond to um, signal or noise? And so um, two different situations. A company changes its depreciation policy. It affects profits, but it doesn't affect the the absolute worth of the business. What does the market do? And then versus another, um, another signal event. And you know, 90 days before, 90 days afterwards, trying to define normality. And from I was absolutely, so that was my Bowie moment. I was absolutely enraptured. It was like a tempest. What would happen? You know, what would happen? I, I, I had my prejudice. And then it was just out of the gloom and on this kind of black and green, low pixel that got me applying to the invest, the, the notable traditional um sector of pension fund investment management uh, partnerships um, in Edinburgh. And, okay. and a lot of you, know, myself and myself embedded with serendipity have, have taken me this far. You know, so the serendipity, um, the, the wonderful company that took me on were under pressure to be more egalitarian and to uh, have a, to source more widely their graduate intake. Prior to me, it being like exclusively Oxford and Cambridge. And they were trying to break into the American pension market. And the consultants were saying, yeah, you know, we need more. And I come into that. Serendipity, I, I met you know, one of the great European hedge fund managers. Um, and he he identified a lot of himself and me. He said I was a pirate. Sadly, the days of pirates are no longer. What whilst I am in the Caribbean, you know, my 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 ship sunk. If you, will. Um, what what's there is no hedge fund sector now. Like the the yeah. pirates became the Royal Navy. I mean, this actually happened in in true life back yeah. in the 17th century or whatever, where the British government said, "Hey, look, 
got a problem with these pesky Spanish. Why don't you join the team? We'll give you absolution. We'll pay you. You know, knock them out. You know, and kind of that's the story with hedge funds today. Um, what so this is Crispin O'Day you're referring Crispin to. Crispin O'Day, yeah. And then I, um, three notable things. Um, so, so Crispin was, life is very rigid. Um, there's almost like a, a caste system where where you were born or who you were born to almost determines which bank or operation that, that you achieve. But in that world, you're inheriting customs and ways of reacting. I didn't have that. It's a, I, I'm original. I've got the original sin. I make it up. And Crispin was wonderful for that because he's like, he majored on playfulness, mm-hmm. curiosity, um, being a troublemaker. Yeah. And that's how you get flow. And sometimes with flow, sometimes you briefly get a glimpse of things which ultimately happened. Hmm. And so in Edinburgh, I'd been analytically, I tell you a story in, in Edinburgh. Um, each day someone would come and deposit, I, I swear, 100 new um, reports on stocks and economic reports. And I was meant to go through them all and then in the early years, distribute the good ones to, to the managers. And I worked beaverishly on this. Uh, and then in the afternoon, another 100 coming. It kept coming. So I was kind of like in the mafia and trying to dispose of dead bodies. And I would surreptitiously when no one was looking, I'd kind of like put it into a supermarket bag. And I'd walk out of the office. I literally I'd walk for a mile, two miles to the other side of Edinburgh and put it into a public waste bin. But when I got back, of course, someone had just refilled me. My life was constantly like, um, and all we were doing was rehearsing the past. Yeah. You know, they were controlling controlling risk through superior stock selection. Right. That, that takes you so far, but then mm. they do, they miss the point when the superior business becomes less than superior, mm-hmm. uh, and the gap and the damage on that is profound. But um, as a firm, a wonderful firm. So Crispin taught me um, the great insight in my career was I'd been trained with the conceit and the arrogance of a well-formed argument. And that had, I'd never made money from that. Hmm. Um, and Crispin taught me how to tame the arrogance of that uh, by using charts. Hmm. Use that almost as like a software inventory management system to say, okay, maybe, but you know what today? There's, I'm not seeing, when I look at this pool of strangers, I'm not seeing any legitimacy, Okay. Um, I mean, the most profound thing that I ever heard, and at the time it was greeted with ridicule by me and by by my peers, was um, a fellow analyst at the time saying, yeah, we we bought it because it's going up, which is the truth and is genius. But it was like, well, that was the most profoundly silly thing you could say, given that they were operating on conceit and arrogance of, of well-formed arguments, narrative. So. Um, Crispin kicked that out of me. And with that knowledge, uh, I was able to sit, you know, tech stocks were going up in 1998, 99, 99, uh, 2000, first half of 2000. And I bought things going up. And then when they reversed, I had a whole playbook of things to do. So um, 
when European stock markets fell 80%, I was running a mutual fund and we lost no money. I think we made 3% cumulative over that period versus 80% drawdown by the majority of other managers. That by helped. being in cash or by... Um, yeah, the, the peer group said, oh, he's cheating. You know, you should always be fully invested. I mean, like, where does it say you should always be fully invested? You yeah, know, so yeah. you, you, there was always a provision you could have 10%. You could do anything with 10%. So yeah. that was gold. And then you had a situation in Switzerland where the pension funds had a guaranteed uh, retu- return that they had to, they were obliged to make. Uh, and the 10 year yield was beginning to, I think it was 3% at the time. The 10 year yield was beginning to break three. And as it breaks three, you're bankrupt. Uh, but you better buy as, you will buy as much as possible at three, at 2.99, at 2.98, because you're, you're going you're going bankrupt but slowly and so i, I was able to read that mm. uh, and various and, and cash balances and then just um i i was already sensing the change the emergence of china and how it would influence uh the perception what a, of what a good business was so good businesses a good cyclical would have been wpp you know, the advertising company, yeah. a bad cyclical would have been Rio Tinto or BHP Billiton. Yeah. And I could sense that China and its imprint on them as the marginal buyer, that the marginal price would be a lot higher and the perception of those businesses would be greater. So I began to get that. Mm-hmm. That led into the, the first year as the hedge fund. And I got gold. Remember, uh, I don't know, a thousand PhDs must work for the Bank of England. Mm-hmm. They had one of the best chancellors, Gordon Brown. That's a political appointment, but he was a studious, smart guy. And all of that genius, of course, all it created was conceit and arrogance. Mm. And they they elected to sell the majority of their gold holding. Mm. Who did they sell it to? They sell it to flow state minds like myself. Why did I get gold? I had a an outrageously um, silly evening in Milan in a silver Prada suit, which I do not drink Red Bull, but back then, for my sins, I had Red Bull vodka. And I woke up the next day and I had been dreaming of the Wizard of Oz. Like it was on an old television and it was going on all the time. Um, I got back to London. My wife thought I was, I'd been taking mushrooms, but I just knew I had to buy gold. I couldn't really take down the Bank of England and say, oh, you know, they'd be like, what? Like, what, what should we have done? Like we are... PhDs and and we were smart people. Great, but, but that doesn't guarantee you success. Huh. So the the esoteric and the kind of these these uh, almost supernatural experiences sound like they do sometimes lead you to get investment decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Have you had any recent ones? Do you know, as as try as I may, you know, I. I I do not have a Bloomberg, God forbid, you know, I, I came, I wanted, I, sometimes I say I died in active combat, you know, I, man, I had, I, my, a success that I accord myself was achieving tenure. I, I achieved 15 years of managing a hedge fund. The majority failed in the first year. 15 is, is like, and is dog life. That's a long time. Um, but I felt it become joyless again. The pirate had was becoming more the you know the captain on the bridge of the the Royal Navy. 
And there was a, and I went on Bloomberg to announce my retirement. And I said, I, I died in that act of combat. And coming to this island, there's a soft, nature provides a soft focus. And there's a psychological concept, soft focus, which is um, recharging of, of the mind. I, I, I had hard focus for 15, 30 years. And it depletes your memory and your reserves. And again, remember, I spent a lot of time going, I was, I was never positioned in, I was never the mainframe. I was always over here and most of the time losing battles. And so most of the time I was saying, oh my God, I'm literally, I was saying, I'm going to die. You know, you know, expletive, expletive. Like your mind, it only works on the basis of trust. Like you tell it and you're going to die. It's like, oh my God, we're going to die. Like where are we? I, I didn't realize we were, you know, in Afghanistan or God forbid, where else? And, and it floods you with this grotesque combination of nasty mm. chemicals. Um, and so I needed healing. Um, and yet those, I mean, in some respects, I'm a paranoid schizophrenic. I hear voices in my head um, and I don't know where they come. Actual I, voices or just metaphorically? Uh, metaphorically. Okay. Uh, the, um, it's subconscious processing. That I, I'm not aware of it, but I've just been trained. I, I've had a lifetime training. And it, it revealed itself in the early days where you would meet someone from the industry and I'd hear myself talking about the current state of play. And I'm like, why do we know? Why do we know is some kind of secret dope Wi-Fi system, which is downloading on me. Um, and from 2020, I kind of re-emerged um, from my man cave. Um, you know, there's a lot invested in yourself and you close your fund. Again, that's, that's hard. Um, but I find myself able to, to discuss what I'm seeing. Um, one of the, one of the great things we haven't touched upon, um, again, is this kind of mercantilist system. I can see, I can feel a remedy and like a, a very obvious political thing, which would be to, um, to insist that the mercantilists actually pursue endogenous growth and just deal with the consequences. It's not our fault that the CCP might be kicked out, you know, deal with it. And if they insist on laboring us with this profound pool of surplus, which creates speculation and, and therefore vulnerability within our economy, we should ask them to pay for it, you know, pay for it in the, in the sense of a, an annual recurring withholding tax. They'll pay it that, you know, they're not hedge funds, you know, that's $7 trillion of treasury holdings isn't there uh, to make a commercial return, it's there to prop up and 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 create the perpetuity like desire of, of the CCP. Charge them for it, um, <laughs> and one of the things I'm seeing, one of the things I like is taking what would they be? They'd be call options on the the dollar CNH cross, which is to say the the renminbi weakening. Okay, um, those options are cheap because, as you know. Um, trade flows just now are dominant. Micro hedge funds are very aware of that and they don't really want to step in the way. The, the trade balance as a percentage of GDP for China is back at the highs. It's like 8% of GDP. Um, and that's why the options are cheap. But, you know, they've, they have this profound desire to, to print 5% GDP growth. And in the last 10 years, more than a third of that growth was achieved from property speculation mm. and from um, negative NPV, net present value, uh, infrastructure projects from fast rail trains mm. to, to bridges, et cetera. 
and don't forget latest. just good old making it up but yeah well um they don't even have to make it up it's we're we're gullible we we all like good stories um we, we're no one dives deep um the the truth the the truth was always there in that you can choose to create gdp growth if you're willing to forgo wealth so if you look at um the chinese stock market over the i think when is it listed from 1996 i mean they they haven't created wealth uh that that was that was always there always apparent um and you you've seen this situation where the bank of japan is resolute in its willingness to to keep um the 10-year shackle to the floor and so the yen's being weak and you're reaching points the the yen renminbi level is at level i mean for if if the yen weakens further our chinese friends will not like it they, they may not have liked nancy being um in <laughs> taiwan they will not like further yen weakness from here you know the the, the thing you have to remember is taiwan um another taiwan I, I, the, the the taiwan from the 1990s they devalued in the asian tiger crisis they had very little dollar indebtedness uh, they weren't struggling but if you're a mercantilist and everyone takes a haircut on their price on their currency to get a leg up if you don't react then it becomes a permanent loss of competitiveness mm. so beware when you see a major uh mercantilist nation which is using undervalued currency to to compete in overseas markets mm. uh, when it has a big weakness worry about the other mercantilist nations in the area Interesting. so may you know like and you don't have to be bold like you know, it, dollar cnh is 675 you can buy you know seven um seven strikes seven and a half strikes um the the, the implied and the realized are not that far removed um, and um, if something hmm. out of the ordinary happens, then you would get an out of the ordinary return. Yeah. All right. So long USD, short RMB. And you mentioned here the mercantilist. That's an interesting point. So you have China, obviously the main one, but then Japan. I mean, aren't most, just about all countries in Asia, the big ones are are exporters, right? So they're basically yeah, and and also the the. They're all mindful and guided by the eras of the late 1990s. Yes. And that's why they're very reticent to pursue endogenous domestic growth. You know, they, they don't want their citizens, you know, think of, so think of how the world could be different. Um, the Chinese enjoy a comparative advantage. You know, they, they've, they've been incredibly good at putting at laying down amazing infrastructure the infrastructure in yeah. the US and the United Kingdom is just a disgrace oh, yeah. and it's it, it, it crosses facts political factions they I don't know why but they're all agreed that uh, infrastructure is not the place to go uh, the Chinese haven't got that um and you know when you're running an eight percent current account surplus not current, trade account surplus the, the trade account surplus today is more than 1% of global GDP. It's enormous, right? It's a trillion dollars. Um, I, the, the, the system that I grew up understanding and respecting the market-based system 
would reprice the dollar renminbi to five, if not four and a half. Yeah, and we'd see what happens then. And, but in doing so, um, so I'm Chinese. I moved from tilling land with no fertilizer hmm. uh, to working in a major metropolitan inside some billion-dollar plant, and the productivity surge is insane. But I, and and so I get paid mul- multiples of what my grandparents got, and and I think that's good. But it's I'm being underpaid versus what I bring to the game. And if we were trading at four and a half, I'm richer. What is mm. four and a half would be what 30%, if not more? I'd be 30 my money in terms of buying, maybe I could afford a BMW made in whatever your know, province of Germany they, they make these things. You know, you imagine being your your currency could buy you 30% more, 40% more. That's and then think of the knock-on impact in terms of being an American-based manufacturer of whatever they desire and how your demand lifts. So we're in a we're in a global de- depression. This form of mercantilism is just keeping us, you know, tied to the floor. We have to break it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then I had the conception that. So I believe, or I'm intrigued by absurdity. The and we saw absurdity. We mentioned Volcker earlier, and I remember reading Michael Steinhardt, the legendary um, macro hedge fund trader, and he got sued. He was piling into treasuries, and he got sued by his clients because his returns were miserable until he got the turn for style drift. Hey, why are you not in equities? Why are you not? Da-da-da? Why are you losing money, you idiot? Um, and you have to remember that you know, Volcker did raise interest rates in the worst economic downturn right. uh, ever, apart from 2008. You know, imagine we raised interest rates in 2000. I mean, I know the ECB idiots did. <laughs> yeah, uh, but imagine the Fed came in, in and kept raising interest. That's what Volcker did. Uh, and so, but whilst inflation was high at the beginning of his tenure in 1979, by 1982, I mean, it would have to be on a drip in a hospital in intensive care, not to notice that inflation was rapidly coming out of the system. And yet, and so the absurdity was rates peak, 10-year peaks at what, 16% in mm-hmm. August 82, like almost taking Michael out. That's absurd. So, And that was the turning point. And so I... I don't know where I am, but it's representative of my thinking. Do we make new lows in the 10-year treasury? Um, and that 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 is the equivalent of trading 16% on 10-year yields. That's like you would have absurdity and you'd get the opening and the closing absurdity to an enormous bull market. Uh, and then I would think back and I say, well, how would that happen? Um, I mean, that happens if Believe me, if China devolves and takes the renminbi to nine, um, everything, it's Mad Max world. Um, and it's not as ridiculous a proposition. You know, the Chinese property market top ticked at $90 trillion. Hmm. Right? Uh, the, the economy is supposedly $15 trillion without any evidence of wealth expansion. Hmm. Um, and the 
the the mark is three times greater than the US figure. It's just the wrong mark. How are they going to deal with that? You know, you, you have large swathes of households not paying their mortgages. I think rightly so. Um, but strategically, one way is you know, a 20% deval takes the dollar value of that property down. And, and again, with the action in Japan, if it were to get out of hand and the yen were to weaken considerably, you know, we'll see. And, and then you know, the silly thing with the Straits of Taiwan and um, you know, China. Uh, I was quite early this year in, in voicing my, my fears and, and raising you know, the, the probability of a China-Taiwan dispute would be kind of tail. And I raised it to about 20% earlier this year, which is a preposterously high figure. And events seem to un- unfortunately keep coming back and kind of legitimizing you know, a non-tail uh, percentage. Um, <laughs> and the reasoning, the thing that struck home was um, China will never have a stronger bargaining position vis-a-vis the rest of the world, vis-a-vis the US. It will never have a stronger bargaining position because uh, we invested so much in the belief that we brought them from abject poverty to being part of the club. And the view was that at some point they would pivot and we'd have a, a rich trading nation that would be less subject to funky politics like communism and and that um, rich trading partners make everyone rich, i.e. their currency would damn appreciate and actually we'd be able to sell them more things and their consumers would be allowed to buy things and mess things up or not mess things up. And none of that is being allowed to happen. And you know, whilst we can impose sanctions on Russia, Russia uh, going into this mess was about 1.8% of GDP. Yeah, it's tiny. And irrelevance. And irre- I mean, Europe made it relevant by the stupidity of a generation of political leadership. You know, I think the euro trades it in the 80s versus the dollar because yeah. why not? You know, the, the, a sovereign is a sovereign because it has secured um, uh, a perpetual stream of, of you know, low energy Low, a low, a low cost, um, sovereign energy source, and it's failed to do that. So no, mm-hmm. Europe's not a sovereign. Russia demonstrates that. Not yeah. a sovereign. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That's not the case with China. You know, mm-hmm. China is so embedded. We are so dependent on them for so much. But in twenty years' time, we will be less dependent. So if I really wanted to do something crazy. And I was Chinese. My window is now. I'll never be stronger than I am today. Yeah. But what do you make of the argument that the Chinese, like the moment they attack Taiwan, the U.S. would cut off the shipping straits in, in, in the Middle East and that'll be the end of their oil imports, other than what they're getting from Russia over land, I guess. And that'll be the end of any expansion, any military industrial. Um, you know, we, we would have we would have to see. But mm. imagine we, we got to the point of having that debate. Right. You know, I, I think you would be trading nine, if not 10 on dollars CNH. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, th- what, what Russia demonstrated was, you you speak to every expert. What what was the chance of Vlad the Bad actually doing it? Like, yeah. You're, 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 
you sign your death warrant at that point. What did he do? Boom! In. So we, we let, you know, this is the dawn of chaos. We, we You know, asset prices are, are elevated because asset prices like smart decisions. They like certainty. They, you know, not, if, if not certainty, it's like they're going to kind of push comes to shove. They'll go rational. They won't go irrational, right? 70s was an irrational. You know, Russia goes into Afghanistan. Uh, Iran takes American hostages. America kind of doesn't come in hard. I mean, the Iranians could believe, like, we took your hostages and you're not invading the country. Oh, my God, you guys are wimps. And, you know, a narrative for the next 40 years is established that we can kind of push and, and you know, and kind of um, have a go. You know, there was a crazy, crazy time. In the mm-hmm. 1980s, the 1990s, the, the noughties, things got better. We got globalization, walls came down, people got richer. Uh, the European Union was inclusive, you know, that's all unwinding. We have Brexit, we have Trump, um, you know, talk about social revolutions. Mm. Uh, France is on, on the edge. How Macron got through was was remarkable. But yeah. internally, he's lost a lot of power. Right. It's right. gone that way. Um, you, you see it everywhere. So mm-hmm. Maybe can we just in closing all tell us how we can find more about you? Yeah. Um, so... I'm glad to say I have uh, launched uh, a Substack. Um, oh, cool. Hugh Hendry, um, either HughHendry.com or the Substack. I'm on Twitter, um, Hendry underscore Hugh. I'm on Instagram wearing my bikini and St. Bart's, um, Hugh Hendry official, and likewise, uh, YouTube. Um, we put out a, a weekly podcast. Right. And I get it. I, I, I fall into this shaman-like uh, state and and some nights you'll find me probably drinking tequila on a on a tropical island and and, and writing, writing gonzo finance nice. and encouraging everyone to buy a acid capitalist um, a baseball cap, trucker's cap awesome. to get enlightenment. All right, very cool, Hugh. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you all for listening. And with that, we look forward to speaking to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.